Welcome to another episode of Thrills and Chills, the journey into what it takes to be the first product marketer. Along the way, we're gonna meet some amazing people, hear engaging stories of the highs and lows of establishing product marketing and the skills needed to succeed in this role. I'm your host, JD Prater, and today I'm gonna mix it up a little bit. I'm gonna give a quick shout out to Sharebird. They're all about placing people into the heads of product marketing, the heads of marketing roles of venture-backed startups. So if you're looking to explore other opportunities, you can email them at recruiting at sharebird.com. And also go take a look at that job portal on the Sharebird website. Maybe you'll find some first product marketing roles open there too. Today's guest is the VP of product marketing at Sisu Data. But I wanna give a quick shout out to Clue. Clue is the leading competitive enablement platform for product marketers that wanna drive revenue for their business. It helps product marketers to easily collect, curate, and distribute insights that enable your revenue teams to beat their competition. Go check them out at clue.com. That's K-L-U-E.com. Today's guest is Grant Shirk, the VP of Marketing at Sisu Data, where he has been building out the function of product marketing. Grant, really interested in this story. Tell me what drew you to Sisu Data and becoming their first head of marketing and their VP of marketing and building out product marketing and establishing it as a function. Yeah, it's kind of a fun story. It was the opportunity of a career or a career moment in many ways. It was at the time, it was nine people at the company getting started. It was a very uncomfortable walk up in San Francisco. I can tell some great <laughs> stories about the summer in 2019 when we were still in offices when it got so hot because we didn't have air conditioning and we had skylights that everybody's laptop stopped working because oh, the wow. fans couldn't keep up with the ambient temperature, which was a pleasant oh, day at CSU. <laughs> It was this great opportunity to come in and not just build product marketing, but build marketing from scratch and work with a really exciting technology, kind of a fantastic product vision and a founding team that was really trying to do something new in a fairly busy field in analytics. Oh man, that's great. I'm really excited because I don't think we've had anyone on so far in two different ways. One, join at nine people. So that's exciting. We're definitely going to dive into nine people. How do you okay. even evaluate the company and the problem with nine people, but also coming in at a VP role? So let's start off with evaluating the company, the product, the founders, the vision, all these things that you were just talking about. Talk to me about how you went through this process and thinking through all of it. Yeah, there were a couple opportunities at the time. There was one with a company that had about 100 people and a seven or eight person marketing team looking to build that up versus this one. But I tend to look at four things when I'm thinking about a company in the first place. Certainly as a product marketer and an enterprise software nerd at heart, the product is at the core of yeah. that. You never really get away from, is this something I would be excited to tell stories about and really learn mm -hmm. more about? So the product is key. And no matter what stage it's at, I mean, we were still pretty early at that point. That market is another one into what existing market or market segment is this headed? How crowded is it? Where are there opportunities to differentiate? And particularly for Sisu, has there been a lot of innovation in this area in the past? And that was a key one for me because we like to joke a lot that at a traditional BI tool, the analytics engine is the person right? And we're the yeah. one asking the questions, trying to figure out, it's like, oh, there's an opportunity to do something here, but in a market that is mature, but ripe for transformation. 
third one's the customer, right? You're always trying to connect what you're doing with the audience. And I don't know if it's a pathos or a passion, but it's kind <laughs> of fun finding those people in an organization who have been overlooked or unloved by technology. And I think that was always my trend at Box. Before the CIO was cool again, you know, really redef helping redefine that role. At Scout, it was all about procurement and sourcing. And coming, bringing technology to an area that was 100% Excel spreadsheets to a certain part. And then mm. for Sisu in particular, to answer the, the customer question, it was the analyst and the head of analytics who 10 years ago, Tableau, Looker, you name it, had learned that they could sell a lot better if they went straight to the CMO or the CEO of the great dashboard. But again, people were doing things manually. How can you help? And then you have to tie all that in with the vision for the company, the impact and the long-term. And there was a really strong intersection of that here at Sisu. Oh. That's really cool. Yeah, we get a lot of questions around that from our audience, really trying to figure out like, I want to lead product marketing, I want to establish it, but like, what stage of company do I go to? I mean, so you join it like a series A, six months later, basically a series B with like a nice round of funding. So that's exciting. So let's move into that like VP role now. So Okay. Six months, you've got some funding. What are you doing first? What are your, some of the things that you're tackling and setting up? I think that's the big question. And particularly when you're at this stage, A or B, and you're the first or the first product marketer, the first role and the first piece of it is recognizing that nobody understands what you do, which I think is really is like everybody's either told from the founders who are doing this for the first or second time, you're kind of given this binary choice, right? Am I, am I going to lean on product marketing or am I going to lean on demand gen? Like which one of those two am I looking for? And so as you're getting this started, you have to recognize that particularly when you come in, nobody really understands what that is unless you get really Really lucky. And that could be a great sign in a founder or a hiring manager for this. But early on, yeah, a lot is it's about what does the product do and how can we define that as clearly as possible? And I think first order of business is define, you know, learn the product and the customers as, as quickly as possible. But then you've got to move from that expert role to then starting to figure out where are we going to go? It's that partnership with the CEO, your salesperson. And if you have a CS organization yet, like how you're taking this to market and then putting together the plan from there. I think our first six months, we were in a specific situation. When I started, we had zero customers. We had a great demo. And we're starting to get the technology to a point where it was market ready. So job one, like, all right, we have a goal to formally launch the company and the product in October. What are the pieces that we would need to get that in place? And so product marketing was a great opportunity because we thought about it as a product launch. All right, what are the core components I would need to run an effective launch? Well, all right, what am I launching? Right, okay, it's going to be the product, hopefully a Series B announcement. Where do we go from there? Do we have any customers? Right, You want that customer third-party validation of what you're doing. So job one became get the first four customers and get reference use cases, get the case studies out of the gate. And then we built the launch around that and then fit the positioning, the product functionality and the vision around that piece. And that's really how we brought those things together and aligned the whole team on how do we land these customers? How do we make them successful? And then how do we tell their different pieces of the story? Got it. Wow. Well, that's a really good process. I think for those listening, if you're like really thinking through product marketing and especially at this stage, I mean, this is crazy too. I mean, like you have zero customers, right? I mean, the product, you're trying to get it ready. So a lot of this too is probably getting that pitch deck, which I know PMMs love the pitch deck, you know, getting that ready. How was that process and crafting that story, crafting that narrative? Was that something that was, was it easy for you or did it, was there a little bit of some tension there? 
Oh, there's always tension in that because at a certain point when you're joining, someone has already done the work of the first pitch, even if the audience for that first pitch is the investor. But the big conversation out of the gate is we're not pitching investors anymore, right? We have a vision. We have to go and identify the problem that we're solving for these, or at least at that point, the problem we think we're solving for customers. And so you are really in whether, whatever your title is, you're in that role of lead PMM. It's like, all right, we need to do the inbound work first and foremost. It's this big pendulum swing in product marketing. Early on, it's all inbound, inbound product marketing. What's the market saying? What are we hearing from customers? Where are we getting the door slammed in our face? And then you swing, once you figure that out, you swing in toward the outbound. Like you're thinking about product launch, thinking about messaging, enabling sales. But then eventually as you swing through it, you come back around to the inbound side and that becomes critical again. It's managing back and forth. But to your question, a lot of iteration on the pitch. Yeah. I think in the first three months from April, I do my math wrong, but April through July, August, we had an iteration of the deck every week. We had a couple of opportunities, you know, as we were working with some of the light inbound that we did have at the time, but also working through our VC network, the Andreessen Market Development Team is fantastic for bringing together interested CIOs, chief data officers, CTOs, who are looking to solve specific problems. And you can both get some live fire exercises with the pitch and then refine and do it again. Uh, And then the team will also bring some of that feedback. And that's a, a critical thing is, don't just look at the outcomes because at that point, you're really trying to match timing with them, but also look at the feedback you can get and kind of expand your network of who's looking at the deck over time. It's also a great opportunity to reach back out to the people that you know from your prior lives and say, hey, will, <laughs> yeah. you, will you take a look at this? Like how you know, am I being brilliant or boneheaded in this moment? And then coalesce all that together. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, you got to have a little bit of humility and vulnerability there to be able to, because you're getting critiqued from everyone. You know, you got your founder, you've got VCs, you've got customers, you've got the salespeople, you've got your friends, you got your network. So it is always a living duck, it seems like. It's never quite finished. Yeah, and that never ends because you have to be situational with the customer, right? It's that art of learning from the discovery in the first part of the call when you're really doing the pitching iterating that into your storyline, which is why the practice of it matters so much so you can call an audible halfway through. And then taking what you learn and being really honest. I think sometimes people can get caught in the trap of thinking that, okay, well, marketing is supposed to come up with what the story is. Marketing is synthesizing what the story needs to be in order to be successful. There's certainly elements of like, we want to land these points, but at the end of the day, your customers and your prospects are going to tell you if you're doing the right job. That's a really valuable point to take. Yeah, I think I hear this all the time too. Marketing will come up with a story. The success of this will be, you know, marketing will do this. There'll be the messaging. I was literally in a meeting earlier today. And, you know, one of the questions is like, oh, it's okay. Marketing will have a good story and we'll make sure it sells. And I'm like looking around like, what? That's a lot of pressure. Like, you don't think it's the design of the program or a design of the product? You don't think there's more to that? And so I can definitely relate with a lot of that. Okay, so we talked about some of these pendulum swings. We've talked about it kind of earlier on, which is a really great reference point for us. Talk to me about what it looks like now. You've been there for two years. What does it look like now? So the last year and a half, What talk to me about some of that development as being a VP. Yeah, I think the, what I'll do is, I think it starts to get really relevant over the last 11 months or so. We were a marketing team of one until January of 2020. So right as things started to close down, we were starting to open up, which Uh, was very interesting. But at that point, you know, we had kind of that initial fit. We had those lighthouse customers and we're starting to see some repeatability in a core customer profile. 
but with some repeatable use cases and needs to start putting that together. And that's when the pendulum really starts swinging more towards the outbound. How do you express the idea in a bigger way? How do you start testing some of the ideas? So we started by hiring actually two key roles. Uh, the first one was demand gen, a director of demand gen to come in and help operationalize some of these programs. Because at a certain point, you have to marry together the storyline, the positioning, the core assets coming from product marketing. You know, what problem are we solving with the distribution expertise and intelligence that can come from demand gen. So you can test a little faster understand where you're getting pickup and then potentially where you have gaps in the storyline. Uh, and then because we knew our sales model is direct enterprise sales, you know, a larger average contract value. And so more of a top-down sale for us. And so I actually brought in an additional product marketer to help carry through both the sales enablement part of what we're doing, but also improve our ability to learn from our customers over time. And at that point, it now started breaking down the problem into focusing more on the number and the target. Because at the end of the day, our first target in 2019 was how do we close this first handful of customers that we can use and go the model the rest on. Now we had to start feeding a sales team. And so that shift focuses up a little bit more from the product. And I think this is where that shift has to happen at this stage to how can I think more in terms of sales and go-to-market overall than just product marketing. So we started saying, all right, what's the company goal for the next two to three quarters? How much pipeline do we have to put on top of that? Where do we think we see those sources? And let's go start trying different programs. Let's try some events when you can still do events. Let's go work some email campaigns, see if email was working. What are the different offers we can put together and trying to line those up with our ideal customer profile and see how well those and then you start building a content program around that was the next step to fill in those gaps. So, I mean, in many ways, as you're trying to do more, you actually have to do a little less marketing. You have to start thinking a little more broadly about how the rest of the organization is supporting or working together on those aspects. Yeah, this is fascinating. You know, again, like when you actually think about building out the function of marketing and you are a product marketer, you're a very skilled product marketer, and then thinking through what is my next hire? And it could be demand gen. And, you know, we haven't had that quite the access into someone. So this is really, I think, fun to listen to because if you're out there, you're like, man, could I be like the first marketer, which is a little bit different than being the first product marketer, right? And you happen to be both. And so how do you build a team now. And then I also love that. I mean, you start thinking about goals and sometimes just you come into an org, you're like, yeah, we already have goals. You don't actually think about where do those goals come from? How do we actually create those goals? What should they be tied to? And so you're actually having to come up with those. And it's very different than let's get the first four or five customers. <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, you're switching from problem to problem. Right. I think that's what got me into why I fell into product marketing in the first place was I really like solving problems. Uh, and that was actually some feedback I got early on in my career when I was trying to make this jump. So I felt like I was running into a brick wall over and over. It's like, why, you know, well, was like, why isn't this happening? What am I missing? And my COO at the time at Box, Dan Levin, had one of those tough conversations. He pulled me aside. He said, look, you need to be finding bigger problems to solve. That's what I'm looking for. It's not about the next customer call. It's not about the next product launch. Like we know how to do those. What's not working? What's the next problem we're going to do? And you find that particularly as the first one in and then the build out, it is a process of finding the next problem and then figuring out the best way to solve it. You're not always going to be the best person to hire to solve that problem. You might be the one who knew how to set up Salesforce the first time, but at a certain point it says, all right, I need to go find three events that are going to, like, how do I solve that problem? Who do I hire to do that? And so you do, you have to say, all right, what are the next two problems we need to solve 
or three problems. Who or how should we go about solving them? And then tackling them one at a time. And that will point you towards what some of those bigger metrics might be. I think that's really good too. I want to come back and zero in on this because sure. we have people that have asked us too, like this, it's this crossing this chasm, going from director, maybe even senior PMM, senior director. How do you get to that VP role? And I, I love that you called out this conversation that you had I would love to just dive in, like be going and crossing that chasm. A lot of times it can feel like you're stalling out. I've been director for so long and like, what advice do you have? But also like, how did you do it? I would love just to learn more about how did you find these bigger problems while you're also trying to do these tactical launch plans? You're trying to talk to customers. Yeah, so I have a couple points to that. So how I personally did it was I had a couple of tough conversations where people were pretty upfront and honest and say, well, here's what you're not doing. And so I looked for opportunities to do more of those. For me, the opportunity came up initially, and this was a director to a director move for me, but I went from Vox to Vera. And at that situation, it was the opportunity to go from a bigger team to a smaller team. So at that point, Box was, we were probably six months past IPO. There probably 1,100 people at the company overall. And I think there were, actually, we had a big marketing team, right? So we probably had 60 or 70 people or more in marketing overall. And the role of a, a director level person, like you had a lot of scope in your function, right? So it was really driving a lot of product marketing focused activities. But to find those bigger problems, sometimes you have to get to a point where you can see beyond what you're doing. Uh, mm -hmm. So I went to Vera, which was a 35 person company at the time and had some initial customer traction. And it was a product marketing role. It was a director of product marketing over there. I'm working with Robin Daniels, who's the CMO over at Matterport right now. Oh, wow. That's cool. I worked with them at Box, followed yeah. them at Vera. Oh. You know, it's, it's a small world, but you also, you want to find people to work with where you have really great complementary skills. That's another great thing. And I think we operate very yin and yang in a lot of different ways, which is good. But it was the chance to say like, all right, there are bigger problems beyond, every startup has problems, right? It's just why you do startups. But there are bigger problems beyond this product marketing role. It was the opportunity to sit in and help drive the sales forecasting process. Like, all right, company number for next year is 3 million. How do we get there? What kind of reps do we have? What is our process? What does our average sales look like? You see, you see those key metrics in the planning process and you start understanding the role that marketing is going to play in that and what you can tackle and take down. Another really big one is finding an opportunity to own a number. If you're going to be the first or if you're going to be the leader of marketing, you've got to know how to drive and own a particular number. For product marketing, my favorite one is qualified pipeline, okay. right? Throw out NQLs, throw out program engaged leads, whatever they are, particularly in direct sales and enterprise, which is what I know best. If you don't have something that's shared with sales, these are opportunities that we have fully qualified that we're going to continue to work. You're missing the opportunity to see that alignment, but also carry that through the sales process. And if you can demonstrate that you own a number, make it or miss it and understand why and explain what you're going to do about it. That's a really key one, but it also helps if it's a metric that impacts another organization. Internal metrics don't matter much, but if it touches <laughs> sales, I mean, depending yeah. on your business model, it could be net retention dollars. That's a fantastic one because it's a shared metric with sales, CS and marketing, which is really nice and how that fits together. Got it. I like that one. I always tried to have that as well. I love like a revenue number, a pipeline number, like anything we've talked about in other episodes, it's like, how does the business operate? What are those levers that I can pull or be a part of to ultimately move it forward? Right. And I, I mean, you're saying it right there. It's like, 
yes, do that and then go bigger with it, you know, and get broader scope with it, have a bigger purview of everything. And I love the cross-functional activity too. I think sometimes you join organizations, you become too siloed. And a lot of times with your internal metrics, I think you're hundred percent spot on there to be careful of that. I think those are important. Have those within your own, maybe like OKRs, whatever, but at the same time, you got to be driving something that's organizationally going to move the business forward. It's a really yeah. good point. Yeah, I think you can kind of break them down. There's leading metrics. Am I on the path to what I'm trying to accomplish? And then there's the trailing or the impact metric, which is what everybody else is looking at. I think another story, if I can talk, you talked about like getting to know the rest of the business. Hey, this ties together a couple of things. I had a conversation with Sydney Sloan, who's the CMO over at SalesLock. So again, another great marketer, product marketing background, deeply engaged in this overlap between sales and marketing with where her product fits. But I was trying to work through a problem with her. And she looked at me and said, you're doing too much marketing. I was like, okay, wait, unpack that a little bit. I definitely have heard that before. Yeah, keep going. (laughs) I'm interested. And it's product marketers. We we tend to be control freaks to about something, (laughs) whether it's the position, the message, the deck, whatever it happens to be. But it also means that we can get really far by being the person who's doing all the things, who's doing the marketing, who's writing, rewriting the copy, tweaking the deck, whatever it happens to be. At a certain point, there are people who are probably better at that thing than you. And you have a lot of area to cover when it comes to something like pipeline or network retention. So sometimes you have to start thinking about the other departments in a more material way and figure out how you can work together or what are the shared problems you can go solve. But that was also what got me on the path to marketing, gosh, 15 years ago. It was at Tell Me Networks. So one of the first truly SaaS businesses we were running toll-free number. It was like pre-Twilio. Toll-free numbers answering 3 billion calls a year in quote-unquote the network, before we call it the cloud, for UPS, FedEx, <laughs> Fandango. We, we built 1-800-Fandango, if you remember that. But it was what kicked me out of UI design, which is where I started my career. And I said, you know, I'm loving solving these problems for these enterprises. Fascinating digging into how a 1% increase in automation rate can drive $40 million of ROI. How do I learn more about that? So I did the obvious thing from UI design and spent two years in strategic planning and finance because I wanted to learn how the business worked. We're doing all of this. Why are we making the decisions that we are? How does that roll up into the plan? And I think getting a little bit of that broader visibility outside of a function, sort of like those bigger decisions that one, your ultimate customers are making, right? They're trying to drive these ROI problems. So you talk about value engineering, but also how do the other departments in my company make decisions? And I think that's a critical context for making that jump. Yeah, I think so too. I think that's also a good point because again, we've had other people on and not everyone starts at, I'm a junior PMM, right? Or maybe not even in the marketing org, we've had previous people that were consultants, right? And it sounds like that's a very similar type of role there too. And so I think it's all about how do you learn these different skills and then apply them? What I find a lot with PMMs, especially the interviews that we do here on Thrills and Chills is we have a lot of ownership. We have a lot of people that love to build, come in with nine person teams and they maybe have an appetite for risk, I I should say, for people that like to establish. And, And you can like, tick off all of these similar types of traits. But this is another one I'm going to add is they have a diverse background as well. It's not just this, I went here, I went here, and it's not necessarily a linear. And I think they use that to well-round themselves to make them really strong PMMs. Do you find that whenever you're even hiring PMMs? Do you find that to be true? Yeah, absolutely. I think the tagline I pulled out of the podcast abstract was embrace the chaos, which I I think was down from thrills and chills. That's definitely part of it. But one of the characteristics that I look for when I'm hiring as someone who eats ambiguity for breakfast. 
that ability to come like, I don't know what any of this is, but I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to have a strong point of view. So yeah, I think that the best product marketers I've hired in the past, one of them was a lawyer who got into software sales, realized she hated the selling part of it, but really liked the storyline and getting to know the customers. Uh, and so brought that you know ability to synthesize very complex information, really strong writer, but a desire to solve problems awesome. Another one actually came from a consumer media background, but had found a home or a little bit of delight in her ability to translate what the engineering team was saying to customers. She felt like she kept getting pulled into these meetings. It's like, why am I here? It's like, well, you can explain this better than anybody else. It's like, that's it. Like somebody who can reduce chaos to simplicity is a really key capability, but that breadth of background I find is an incredibly valuable asset in the world of product marketing. It's a lot harder than it sounds. I definitely have talked to some people and they do struggle with that and being able to kind of test for it, even trying to figure it out during the interview process is it's really difficult. But I think if you've listened this far into any of the shows, all of our guests are very good at that. Uh, and one thing I'm always so jealous of is how well our guests can take these complex ideas and can distill them down into, these are the four things I looked for at this company or here's the first five things I did. If you listen, they're always thinking and I'm going to break this down, but that's how you have to do it. You probably have heard me say like, how do you eat an elephant? It's one bite at a time. And thankfully we've got people on like Grant that are walking us through which bites they took first. I think that's the real kind of takeaways from this podcast that I'm thoroughly enjoying for myself, but let's transition now. You know, this is thrills and chills. I mean, you're at the VP level here for a couple of companies. You've been around in tech what are some of those thrills and chills, the highs and the lows of your own career? Oh man, highs, lows, thrills, and chills. Well, I think some of the most terrifying moments have all had to do with events and public speaking, uh, both in kind <laughs> of the good, terrifying, and the bad. But uh, I remember heading into Box, first role that I had taken in product marketing where I was hired into it, as opposed to having been promoted into it internally. And I sat down with Robin Daniels, who we were talking about a week before I started. He said, by the way, Boxworks is our conference. It's in two months. I've already signed you up to, to lead a session. Oh, wow. Like, okay, let's go. Let's get ready. But it's kind of those moments of embrace the hill and lean into it a little bit. And so you can find that the things you love. And I think that was the start of a really good run of storytelling. How do you go from one session to eventually trying to help to drive the content for 50 sessions across three days and teach speaking skills internally, externally, wrangle customers, find some amazing stories and kind of dig in and learn how people are using the product. It was really fun. <laughs> and then kind of repeating that, you know, we threw just recently, we did the future data conference at CSU. We saw this opportunity where we were a four person marketing team at the time. This was September of last year. Like, you know what? We don't have to deal with caterers. We don't have to deal with hotels. There's a gap in the market for analytics and data conferences that aren't vendor specific. Let's go for it and see what we can do. And so we had 40 days. It was our 40 days to pull this off. You know, again, leaning into what do we have to work with? What do we know best? What are our strengths? Put together some amazing speakers from the network, told a unique story about the future of data systems broadly and brought together a unique mix, academia, founders, practitioners. We had almost 1,800 people sign up for a conference that had never happened before. We had a, a show up rate of 50%. That's great. Take it every day. I think we definitely burned some cycles on that one, but now we have uh, you know, kind of an enduring brand that we can play with. In terms of things like chills, 
trying to think of a good one. We talked about some of those tough conversations, things that didn't go well. Actually, a lot of these have to do with events. Public speaking is a fear that people have. We were doing Back at Box again. We had rented out the Millennium Theater in New York City, which is an 1,100 seat kind of off-Broadway venue for a, a field event. It happened to be the week of the first snowpocalypse when <laughs> not only did New York shut down, but the New Jersey state governor basically said, we're shutting down the trains. So you better go on the trains and come home. So nobody's going to be here. So we had an 1100 seat theater, force majeure, Kathleen oh. Castellac, who was our, just a, a saint of a person, but one of the best events people I've ever worked with. I was like, all right, here's what we're going to do. And we changed the agenda, refactored the content and wound up having a really intimate conversation with a bunch of customers in that moment. It's like, you know, you have to embrace embrace the chaos and lean into it and see what happens. Oh man. Oh wow. <laughs> I can only imagine the conversations, the headaches, but no, I think you, you got some good ones there. I mean, the public speaking one, I think that one's a new one. That one's always a thrills and the chill. I mean, the amount of work that I put into any kind of public speaking, the amount of times I thumbed through my deck and I'm trying to remember, did I use animation on this one? Did I not? So when I click the button, I'm never surprised, but that takes so much work, right? And then you get up on stage and you realize, wow, a thousand people is a lot or 1100, you know what I mean? Like it goes on and on and it's a big deal. But at the same time, I mean, how can you predict snowpocalypse? I remember those headlines, you know, it's what yeah. do you do next? And it's like, how do you pivot? How do you make the best and the most of that situation? I think it always ends up being some of the best memories though. Yeah, it's, you'll, you'll always remember it. Actually, a question for you, because I'm always looking for other people's tips and tricks. When you're practicing a pitch, like what do you do to make sure like, how do you avoid that fear of, did I forget the slide? What's coming next? Is there a build? <laughs> I was curious what other people do for this one. You will find, I probably practice 30 times. Okay. No joke. I practice and practice. I will give it to my wife and have her and she'll critique me. She's like, you this, this, you know, she'll give, like you said, you had filler words. I don't understand what you're talking about. And she's not supposed to, right? Like I'm talking about something that's completely foreign to her, but she always gives great feedback. And I think she's always my best and worst critic. And then I'll usually go to like teammates. I'll try to give it to like a close, a smaller group. We get their feedback and it's just kind of iterative, but I probably practice in the last probably two to three weeks leading up to something. If it's like a big presentation, yep. right? Yeah. That's what, so we talked about control. We talked about wanting to understand I'm thumbing that thing and I'm practicing every time. <laughs> that's a, that's a good one. One thing that we've done with our teams is it's a little bit more chaotic, but on purpose, because in the moment I can never remember what I'm supposed to, I'm terrible at memorizing. So we would play PowerPoint roulette. So there's a hidden feature in PowerPoint, if you don't know it, when you're in presentation mode, you can hit a number and then return and it will jump to that slide. Oh. So if you're on slide 15 and you hit four return, you'll jump to slide four. Oh, that's so what fun. you can okay. do to practice is you build the deck and then you put somebody up at the screen who can't see the keyboard and you make them do the pitch in random order. Oh, wow. You just have someone there just like slide six, go. And so you have to do that exercise of address the slide, enter the slide, tell the story, close it, and then see what comes next and then bridge the two together. But it really <laughs> forces one. you, it makes sure that you're good in the moment, no matter what happens. Oh, because it's going to be a technical glitch. There always is. <laughs> Fire alarm pulled on me at a presentation in New York City. <laughs> so we were at the Marriott Marquis on Times Square. I was about 10 minutes into a presentation, probably four or 500 people in the audience. And we had to evacuate the building. And then I had to come back and start again. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so yeah, you never know what's going to happen. 
No, you never know. And one that I'm going to add another one that it was to help with public speaking. So again, we talked, you know, that could be a chill for some out there listening. And it's on the same similar with like PowerPoint roulette, everyone would get to design one slide. It could be a graph. It could be something you never knew. And then it is your turn. You get up and it could be a slide and it could just be something. And you have to create a story about this graph. You have no context, but it's your job to create a story that's engaging, that's cool. And so it could be like, this is the correlation between shark deaths and light bulbs going out. And you have to create a story for it, right? And it's getting you kind of used to that, you know, in the moment, making something up, making the best of it. And just being able to kind of speak to stuff. It, it was a kind of a fun, like lunch and learn events for like the marketing team. And I think everyone enjoyed it. But if you're looking for something to do. That's excellent. So, well, Grant, thanks again for coming on and sharing the day in the life of a VP, talking to us about building, I mean, literally from scratch, a marketing team, the processes, the steps that you took, helping us figure out how do we cross that chasm to get to that VP level role. I I thank you again for coming on and sharing your experiences with us. JD, it was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks, everyone. That wraps up today's episode of Thrills and Chills. And again... Thank you, Clue, for being a sponsor of this show because with Clue, you can build and deliver battle cards to help sales close more deals. Stay on top of your competitor's strategies and measure your competitive program's impact to the bottom line. Don't just compete, compete to win with Clue. And a special thanks again to ShareBird for making this podcast possible. We'll see you all next Thursday.